We're going to start the series today on First and Second Timothy. It'll get us through till about Christmas time, and we're going to go one verse at a time. Uh, today we'll get through two verses, and uh, it'll provide sort of an introduction to the to the whole series today as well. Looking closely at who Paul is and who Timothy is, and what are the the themes that are going to come out in this letter, so that we're we're prepared and ready for that. So we'll need our Bibles. If you have uh, uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one in the rack in front of you, page eight hundred and fifty-one in those white Bibles is where we're going to be. Uh, we'll need those, and we're going to need to pray. We're going to need God's help. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you, God. We know that you're the the author and sustainer of all of our days and all of our minutes. And we know that you want us during this life to, to know you more. And in knowing you more, to obey you more and enjoy you more and worship you more. And so we ask that we would know you more today. Give us spiritual insight into who you are and who we are and how great you are. How far you have come to rescue us. How far you have gone to rescue men like the Apostle Paul. And how good you have been to encourage and uphold men like the pastor Timothy. Thank you for speaking through Paul as he wrote this letter to his dear friend, Timothy, nearly 2,000 years ago. Thank you for preserving your word so that we could have it today, so that we could know you more. I pray that you bless this time. Help me to speak clearly and accurately and faithfully. And help us to all be good listeners to your word, that we may know you more. We pray this in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Just a few things before we get into verse 1. And um, I just decided literally five minutes ago to, to change and reorganize the whole sermon. So this could go really bad. I hope it doesn't, but I'm just going to reorganize some things and, and do it in a, in a different order. So it shouldn't be a big deal. We were going to, you know, just go verse 1, verse 2, look at Paul, look at Timothy. So we're going we're gonna to look at Timothy first, and then I, I think we want to end looking at, looking at the author of this book, Paul, and, and, and who he was and what God had done in his life, which is so important for us to understand that context if we're going to understand this letter that, that Paul is writing to his, his dear son, his dear spiritual son, Timothy. So a couple of things. This, this letter was written in the mid-60s, not 1960s, but just 60s, uh, first century, um, almost 2,000 years ago. Um, so it was written about 60 years after, of course, the birth of Jesus. And, and about 30 years have passed since Jesus was crucified on the cross. And Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That happened about 30 years before this letter is being written. And here's what we know from reading the gospel accounts, the good news accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that after Jesus was crucified and after he was resurrected and before he ascended, 
Okay, so Jesus, before he ascended, he, he went back to be with God the Father and, and sent the, the Holy Spirit in his place to guide and to lead and, and dwell in, in Christians and in, in believers. But before Jesus ascended, he spent some time with his followers. And, and in that time, he, he did at least two things. He identified them and he charged them. In other words, he gave them their identity and he gave them their mission. In fact, if you go to our, our website today, you will see that we draw from that, even as our little church here, our identity and mission as a church is rooted in what Jesus has told us our identity and mission is. And so he identified them and, and, and had earlier on in his ministry, these 11 men that he had spent three years with, he identified them as disciples. You are my disciples. You are my followers. And then in Matthew 16, he gives a bit of an indication to Peter that there's, they're going to be called collectively and universally the church. Because Jesus looks at Peter, who's going to sort of head up the disciples after Jesus leaves. And he says, upon you, upon this, I'm going to build my church. My, the Greek word is ekklesia. I'm going, to, I'm going to build something. You're going to be this, this, this living organism that's going to be made up of, of my people, my disciples, and universally you will be called the church. And so he identifies them. But then he also charges them. He gives them an instruction. He gives them a mission. At the end of the gospel, according to Matthew chapter 28, remember verses 18 through 20, you read it's been called the Great Commission. Okay, he is charging them with what to do. And he looks at his disciples, right, in their eyes. He says, here's what I want you to do. He says, go. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So he gives them this identity and he gives them this mission. They did a pretty good job. Go and make disciples of all nations. Eleven men in the Middle East, in Jerusalem. Eleven men in Jerusalem. And nearly 2,000 years later, here we are at, at 95678. And we know who Jesus is. And we know what the gospel is. And we love and are also disciples of Jesus. And that started with 11 men in Jerusalem who were told, go. A lot of work to be done. Because there were 7 billion people now in the world today. And there are 2 billion people that don't even have access to the gospel. But the disciples did a good job. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so you go through your next book in your Bible, the book of Acts. And, and in the book of Acts, it's a historical account of this early church. We read about the rapid expansion of the church, uh, of these 11 disciples responding to their identity and mission. And so the book of Acts is, is story after story after story, right, of disciples going where there were no disciples and making disciples, exactly what God told them to do. Now, in making disciples, here's how they did that. There, there isn't, as some would believe today, that it's like, you know, making bread or making cookies. And there's some sort of a recipe. And you just follow these instructions. And, oh, oh look, you, you cranked out a disciple. It doesn't work like that. Our job, right, really is, is to preach. 
is to preach. And we could break that down and talk about the many different ways that we all preach and how it's not just a pastor that does it and what's distinct about this and what we do in our lives. But we're called to, in a Romans 10 sort of way, to preach the gospel. And we're supposed to be the, these feet that bring people good news. And Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that's something that we have all been identified and charged to do as Christians. And so that's how it worked in the early church. Disciples would go where there were no disciples and they would preach and then they would pray. Okay, so there wasn't some sort of a formula in making disciples. There's a responsibility that, that they had and that we have and we have as a church here in making disciples. But, but it's more of planting a seed and then it is God, right, that has to make the seed grow. So we preach and share the good news and share the gospel and we talk about Christ and what he's done and we talk about God and what he's done and we talk about us and what we've done. Okay, and we try to connect the dots for people. But ultimately, God has to come underneath And take out a heart of stone that those words just bounce off of. And he has to give a heart of flesh. Or he has to make the dead alive. Or he has to open ears. Or he has to open eyes. Right? So that we understand this good news. And so that's what was happening. Disciples were going and they were preaching and they were praying. And then you had conversion. You had people becoming Christians and believing this good news of who Jesus was and what he had done. And as conversion would take place in these cities where disciples were going and making disciples, they would then be organized into what Jesus had talked about, churches. They would all be a part of one church, one bride of Christ, one people of God, but then they would be organized into local churches gathered together in their specific communities. Local churches like we have right here. Veritas Church is a, is a local church. And when you read the rest of your New Testament... You have all these letters. And what are these letters? These letters are written by the disciples who are teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Still fulfilling the Great Commission. And they are writing to churches and helping them to organize themselves in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. And so you read that in Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These are being written to the church at Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and Colossae. And they're writing them and saying, okay, this is, as a church now, this is what you are called to do. This is how God wants you to live and, and organize yourselves as, as His people in this community for their good and for God's glory. So gather like this and come together every week. And here's, here's how you should pray with one another. And here's, how you, here's the kind of singing that should take place. And, and here is what preaching looks like. And, and, and here's how you should confess sin to one another. And here's how you should be involved in one another's lives. And, and here are the, the officers in the church that you should appoint to, 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 to be responsible and to oversee this. And elders and, and, and deacons. And so we, we read about this going on throughout the New Testament as the church grows. And so what you have here in 1 Timothy is Paul, who's a missionary. Okay, he's one of these apostles that received this commission from God. And he's gone out, right? And he is going and he's making disciples. And he is writing this letter and he's writing to Timothy, who is a pastor in a church in a city called Ephesus. And he's giving him words of instruction and wisdom from God. So 1 Timothy, along with two other books, 2 Timothy and Titus, they started being called in the early 1700s the pastoral 
letters, the pastoral epistles. And pastoral because they're, they're written by a pastor, two pastors, Timothy and Titus. They're written with a, a pastoral tone. Which means this, a pastor is, is one who has been charged by God to care for souls. That's what a pastor is. We'll talk about that a lot through First Timothy because Paul talks about it a lot. A pastor is not a CEO. A pastor is not someone who rallies people. He's not a motivator. He is one who has been called by God to care for the souls of people. That is his job, a pastor. And so these pastoral letters are, are, are Paul writing to other pastors with that in mind and encouraging them and the people in their churches how to, how to shepherd and have their souls shepherded by, by their pastors, but ultimately by their senior pastor, Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to Timothy, who's in a very rough place. He's in a city of 225,000 people. We'll get into this. Timothy's probably in his late 20s. And he is put in charge of the church there. And it, it, was, it was not uh, a, a simple, easy context for Timothy to find himself in. There was a lot of pain where he was. There was a lot of opposition where he was from without and, and from within. And so Paul the Apostle, just in summary... He's writing to his dear friend and pastor, Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy to help set his course and to help set the course of his church. You need to plot a course. There's a wrong way you can go, Timothy, as a pastor. And there's a wrong way you can go, Timothy's church. Here's the right way and here's a course that will honor God. So he's helping Timothy and helping his church to plot that course and to keep that course. And Timothy and his church are both developing in a city whose ideas, beliefs, and convictions are completely counter Christ. Completely counter Christ. And that's true for us today. While we live in a relatively safe place and we live in in, in relative comfort and ease and we live in a fairly religious society or you could even say a spiritual society, we still live in a place where primarily the ideas, the beliefs, and the convictions where we live are counter-Christ. And just because everybody is smiling and going to church doesn't mean that everyone knows Christ. And so it's really applicable to us. Really applicable. So just two verses. Real quick, verse 1. We'll come back to it and talk about Paul. But it says Paul. is just a typical greeting for a letter written in the first century. The author and then the recipient. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. That's the from. To Timothy. My true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul wrote 10 letters. No, I'm sorry, 13 letters of the New Testament. Wrote most of the New Testament. Six of the letters that he wrote, six of them mention Timothy in the letter. Two of them, Timothy is included in the greeting. And two of them, first and second Timothy, are written to Timothy. In other words, Timothy is mentioned in 10 of Paul's 13 letters. So Timothy is, in the New Testament of your Bible, Timothy is, is more connected to Paul than anyone else. So if you were to look at the life of Jesus and you were to say, okay, well, he had 12 disciples whom he was close to. He had three disciples whom he was really close to. And he had one who he was particularly close to. And that was the beloved disciple, John. If you were to look at Paul's life, by the way, Paul was the same age roughly as Jesus growing up at the same time. If you were to look at Paul's life, you could look and say from the information we have, if Paul had a close friend, if Paul had someone who was closer to him and more dear to him than anyone else Timothy is that man. And so a lot comes out when we're reading these letters. We we read, how does someone who loves Jesus write to someone else who loves Jesus that they deeply care about? What do they call them on? How do they encourage them? How do they rebuke them? What is the tone of their speech? We, We find that. It's very curious. We find that in Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy, we know from 2 Timothy chapter 1, which we'll get down to in a couple months from now, we know that he was a third generation Christian. Mom was a Christian. Grandma was a Christian. Uh, Mom's name was Eunice. Grandma's name was Lois. Uh, Most likely, his mom and his grandmother became Christians the first time that Paul came through their city during his first missionary journey, the city of Lystra, came through and, and, and planted a church and, and preached the gospel. And they taught the gospel to their son, Timothy. We don't know much about Timothy's dad. It is, it's very possible that he was basically raised by a single mom. His dad was a Greek. We know that he wasn't a Christian, but he seems totally absent from anything that we ever read. So there's a good possibility that, that Timothy's father was, was not even around. And Paul met Timothy. You can, we can actually read about it. We can turn there. Acts chapter 16. Paul met Timothy when he was coming through the city of Lystra. And he goes to the home of Eunice and Lois, her mom, is there. And Timothy, her son, is there. And then you get the idea. It's sort of like this, uh, almost like this college recruitment meeting. It's like Paul is there and, and he's the head coach of a big football team. And he says, we want your son because he recruits Timothy. Timothy's probably 18 or 19 years old. He's pretty young. Timothy's probably 18, 19 years old. And he has such an... A great reputation as a young man of God that Paul comes to his home and sits down with him and his mom and his grandmother and says, I, I want you and I want your son. I want him to come with me and I want him to be a co-missionary with me. I want him to leave home and come with me and preach the gospel. Amazing. But let's read about it real quick. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derby. And then to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. 
He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. We just glaze over that, but that's serious commitment on Timothy's part. I've been through some job interviews, but that's a rough job interview. Everything looks good, Timothy. Just one more matter to take care of. Goodness. But he was going to, he was, he was, he was raised as a, as a Greek child. And so he was going to be going and ministering to people who would find it culturally offensive if he did not have that physical sign of circumcision. And so he was willing at 18 or 19 years old to be circumcised by his buddy, Paul. <sighs> Commitment. So you the kind of man Timothy was. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So Timothy goes along with Paul and travels with him from city to city for, as best we can tell, roughly about 10 years. This is where they really build their relationship, doing ministry this close with one another. And about 10 years down the road, so Timothy is most likely about 28, 29, 30 years old, Paul leaves Timothy. He leaves Timothy in this great city of Ephesus, and he leaves him there as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, a a church that Paul had planted, a church where he had spent at least three years ministering, three very difficult years and rough years. He was almost killed in the city, and he puts Timothy in charge, and Paul just goes, because that's what Paul was a goer. There are men that God calls who stay, and there are men that God calls who go. There are women who God calls to stay, and there are women who God calls to go. And some of you know who you are. Some of you have friends or family, and you know who they are. Some are like a Timothy who stay put. And Paul says, you're best served serving God right here in Ephesus. And I want you to love these people and, and pastor these people for the rest of your life. And then some are like Paul. You know, three years maybe max is where, where he lands in a place. But then he goes on to the next place and he goes on to the next place. And his evangelistic gifts and his abilities okay, and, and, and the, 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 his life situation suit him to go from place to place and, and just build people up and then appoint leaders. And, and then he goes. But you can imagine Timothy. You can imagine Timothy when he's been with Paul for 10 years. His dearest and closest friend. And now here he is left in a very difficult city. In a church with a lot of problems. And Paul says. It's all yours. So a few months maybe. Maybe a year at the most. Paul writes Timothy a letter. That's what this is. He's communicating to him. He's heard, he knows what the problems are, what the issues are, what the struggles are, what Timothy is going through, what the church is going through. And he's not able to be there, and so he writes them this letter. And he says to Timothy, we don't want to just glaze over these words. He says, and he he obviously chose them carefully, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the things that we're going to get as we read through this is that Timothy is struggling. He's having a difficult time. He's most likely, from what we read in verse 3, he's most likely been tempted to, to leave 
the church. It's that difficult and it's that painful. And Paul's going to encourage him to push through that. But he is not in a good place. He's likely fearful. He's uncertain. He's dealing with worry. He's dealing with anxiety. And Paul knows this. And so he speaks very tenderly to him, even in the greeting. And he really wishes and prays three things for his life. Grace, mercy, and peace. What kind of grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord? Paul doesn't know how things are going to really roll with everybody who's in Ephesus and his church and his fellow elders and the deacons. And he doesn't know. But Paul does know that God is faithful. And Paul does know that God will deliver. And what he wants for Timothy is what all of us should want for our friends and want for our family members. Grace and mercy and peace. Mercy has a, has a real special tone here. Think of it as grace for guilty and mercy for the miserable. So we are guilty and in need of God's grace. We're in need of Him to give us undeserved favor. But then there is something deeper that the word mercy gets at. It is still grace and undeserved favor. But there is a, a, a tenderness and a, a kindness that is involved in mercy that is specifically, is specifically for those who are in pain. And those who are suffering. For those like Timothy maybe who are ready to throw in the towel. We're at a point in their life where they say, like maybe you are, or you've been, or you will be. I I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't know how much longer I can hold out. I don't know if this is possible. What do you need? You need grace and mercy and peace from Jesus Christ. This is what you need. This is what I need. This is what Timothy needs. Now, Timothy has been sort of set up. Timothy is not the, 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 what you would consider to be the most qualified guy to lead this church in Ephesus. We get this as we're going to read and find out more, more about Timothy. But see, this is what God likes to do. God likes to, to have us in places where we're dependent on him. Right? There has never been, I have never heard a Christian have this kind of testimony that when they look back on their life where they said, you, you know, I grew the most when I was, when everything was going well circumstantially in my life. No Christian has that testimony, right? If I were to ask you, you've been a Christian for any substantial amount of time, and I were to say, when were you most sanctified? When were you drawn closest to Christ? When did you find that, that your relationship with Jesus became most vital? When, if you were like a plant, okay, when were you planted by streams of water? And when did you really grow and flourish? And I've never heard a Christian say, you know, there was a stretch where just nothing went wrong for me. It's like everything I touched turned to gold. There were no issues, no problems. Everybody loved me. And I found that it was in that season that, that me and Christ were just on target and growing. And it was no Christian talks like that, right? Our testimony is, uh, it was... It was when I was going through hell. It was this 
painful circumstance where I had no clue what the next day held. Where I felt like the, 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 like the Psalms talk about, like the earth was giving, have you felt that? Like the earth was giving way underneath me. If you haven't, you will. Where the discouragement and the despair and the confusion will be so great that you just feels like the world is just going to swallow you. And you're just going to be done. This is when we grow. It's why our loving Father brings these painful seasons to our life. And so this is Timothy's setup. And Paul's a part of it. Paul's looking at Ephesus saying, man, this place is a mess. (laughs) Timothy, you're on I'm sure he left praying, God, I know you're going to sanctify him through this. And we see God does. But not the most qualified. Here's what we do know about Timothy. He was not, he was not at all the poster child for pastoring a church. Here's some of the things that we're going to find out. He was not formally educated. We know that. Not like Paul, who was, we'll get there, was educated. Timothy was not formally educated. He's not a graduating at the top of his class kind of guy. He was young. He was in his late 20s. So many of the people that he would be overseeing now, or if you want to use the word in charge of, were probably going to be older than he was. He was relatively inexperienced. I mean, he had gone with Paul for 10 years, but he had been with Paul, and Paul was Paul. He'd never been out on his own like this, so relatively inexperienced. We know that he was timid. He was timid, and he lacked confidence, probably because of his age and probably because of his inexperience. We also know that there's a good possibility that he had some sort of gastric problem. Like, poor Timothy. These cards are are stacked against him. Young, uneducated, inexperienced, timid, and prone to flatulence. That's not the poster child to, to run a large church. But let's give him like a, you should stack chairs. <laughs> let's give him maybe like a behind the scenes sort of ministry. What does Paul do? Paul puts him in the position of the elder, the pastor, the overseer at the church of Ephesus, when, when no one, he would not, if you had a committee that was gathered together, they would not choose Timothy. We want, we want the young, stinky guy. That, we think that he would do great here. They wouldn't choose him, but here's the point, right? Here's the point. God always does this. I mean, this is the testimony that comes through your entire Bible, that God is always choosing those whom you would least expect and those whom are least qualified. And the reason, just put this together. The reason is, understand, okay, here's God doing that, and now understand what is God's purpose? What is God's ultimate purpose? God's ultimate purpose in creation, in conversion, in sanctification, in worship, in God's ultimate purpose in everything, in creating every molecule, is that He would be glorified. That He would be praised. That he would be seen as great. So how is God going to be seen as great? But when he chooses the lowly and does great things in them and through them. 
When God does that, there is no credit that we can take. So whether it was Israel, or David, or Gideon, or Jonah, or Timothy, or me, or you, God is always choosing the lowly so that he would be glorified. And Timothy is another example. You remember when God chose David in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16? And Samuel goes and, and, and he's going to look for a king. And, and God says, I'm going to tell you who the next king is going to be. Because Saul is not going well. And we're going to choose a new king. And so he sends them to a guy's house, the, the house of Jesse. And he says, one of Jesse's sons is going to be king. Right? You remember the story? It's a great story. It's like a Timothy story. And so Samuel walks onto the seat. He says, okay, bring your sons out. And so he brings out his seven sons. And, and Samuel looks at him and he's like, oh, well, this is easy. There's like this four-looking guy named Eliab. And he says, this is obviously the one whom God has chosen. This must be the next king of Israel. And God says, no. He says, all right, well, let's go. You know, who's, ne- okay, this guy. And he's getting it all wrong. You remember that famous verse in 1 Samuel 16, 7? The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Samuel says, Well, God's rejecting all your kids. Is there anyone else? And you remember what Jesse Well, sort of. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know... The kid, David, he's out with the sheep right now. I I guess I could go get him. He goes and gets him and God says, there you go. That's the king. If you were here when we studied through the book of Judges, you remember perhaps the greatest story of God choosing the lowly to be glorified through them, Gideon. God comes to Gideon and says, okay, my people are in trouble and I want to use you to rescue them. And Gideon does this, like, right, one of those. He says, um, you dialed the wrong number, God. You, for, you don't know who I am. And you remember his speech? He uses the word least like five times. I'm the least of the least of the least of the least of the least. Like there's a really small tribe, and I'm a part of that tribe. And then there's a really, you know, messed up family, and I'm a part of that family. And then there's some really puny kids, and I'm the puniest of them. Like, I'm the least. And God says, exactly. God says, exactly. All right. God, whatever. And so he goes. And then Gideon says, well, I'm going to do my best here. So he organizes an army. He's looking out at thousands of enemies. And says, okay, I'm going to build up my army. So he, he manages to muster together 32,000 men. That's pretty good. 32,000 men. He brings them before God and says, okay, we're ready to go to battle. And God says something ridiculous to him. He says that you have too many people. And Gideon again is like, what the? <laughs> Too many people. No, you mean, do you mean not enough? You understand, God, how war works typically. <laughs> you know, the more the better. Like I've been putting posters all over, you know, and we're trying to get guys signed up. And we got them. And 32,000 is pretty good. Let's, let's do this. And God says, no, it's too many. And then God has him do all these ridiculous things. And God begins to whittle down his army. Do you remember how many he whittles it down to? It's the original 300. 
300. And then God looks at it, and you just picture Gideon there with his mouth just hanging open, like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I mean, and then they go, and, and God says, blow trumpets. Like, okay, we're going to take the Dorchestra out there, and that's how we're going to conquer our enemies. But God just says, 300. And he looks at, at Gideon, who can't believe it, and he says, perfect. And so God is looking at Timothy, and he is saying, Perfect, because God chooses the lowly to make his glory known. So identify with this. I think it's good as we're reading this right away, is that we are all the lowly. We are all the lowly ones. We could be so judgmental and condescending. And so we tend to think, you know, even as we hear that principle, God chooses the lowly, and we think about, you know, stories of people who are disabled or, or blind or deaf, and we hear about how they've overcome things and been ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we applaud and say it's wonderful and beautiful, and it is. But we tend to think, see, that's an example of God using the lowly in order to be glorified. But the truth is, As sinful human beings, we are all examples of God choosing the lowly. We're all Timothys. All of us. Dependent on God. This is Timothy. So let's go back to verse 1, though. Paul. That's who's writing this. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So this is Paul. Paul, also an unlikely candidate. We know from a physical description that was written of Paul in the year 150. For those of you who are visual and like to picture something, we know that he was short, stout, had a long nose, bow-legged, and his eyebrows met commonly called a unibrow. He had a mustache on his forehead. <laughs> relocated. This is Paul. Not the guy that you would look at. In fact, you, you'll see that other, other guys are even making fun of him. It's and he's all talk. You know, he writes his letters, but then when he's in person, you know, he's not, he's not much. Paul is, is, the, is the most influential leader in the early church, hands down. He is the most influential leader in the early church. He wrote most of the New Testament of that Bible that you have in your lap. 27 books, and Paul wrote 13 of them. He wrote the majority of the words that we find. And Paul's testimony was this. Paul hated Jesus until he met Jesus. He wasn't a churchy. He didn't grow up, you know, hearing Jesus and loving Jesus and knowing him, at least saying he loved him and knew him and lived this life. And then one day just sort of snapped out of it and really loved him. He was in opposition. I mean, he went from being a persecutor to a pastor. He went from being a murderer to a missionary. Complete 180 degree turnaround. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which was a Roman province, which was a, a highly educated city. It was a very wealthy city. It also meant that Paul was a Roman citizen, which had many benefits that came along with it that we're going to see come out in this letter. And uh, you can see it in the book of Acts. 
He most likely was very privileged, probably went to the best schools and came from a wealthy family. Mom and dad, as best we know, were super committed to religion. His dad was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a big deal. Not only that, but his dad was a Pharisee within the tribe of Benjamin. So at a young age, Paul's life began to head in two parallel directions. One is he wanted to be a Pharisee like daddy, and the other he wanted to be a tent maker. So a Pharisee was going to sort of be his spiritual occupation, if you will, but in order to provide for himself and maybe a family someday, he had to learn a trade, as many Pharisees did, and so he learned to become a tent maker. And we see that he supports himself as a Christian, doing that from city to city so that he wouldn't be a burden to anyone. So he goes in these two directions, but he becomes a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a religious sect who held God's law in high regard. In fact, in too high a regard to where they began to ignore or become numb to the grace and mercy of God and became very hard-line law promoters. In fact, they were so hard-line that they didn't just keep God's law, but they added to God's law, which is legalism. So they made laws and created lines you know, 10 feet back from the line that you're not supposed to cross just so you don't even get close to crossing the bad line. And so they created all these rules that were in addition called the oral law. And they followed this. And what ended up happening to the Pharisees over time is they really became more consumed with the head than the heart. They became a sect that was more concerned with external than internal and outside versus the inside, which is why Jesus calls them, remember, as those were doing all these good things on the outside, and yet their heart is far from him, and he called them whitewashed tombs. So you look great. You're, you're, you're whitewashed. You're polished. Everything's waxed. It looks really nice. But on the inside, you're just dead, dry bones. But they were zealous. They were zealous for God's rules and God's law. And this was Paul. So he would have studied at a very young age in his hometown of Tarsus, but roughly about the age 12 or 13, he would have been sent to Jerusalem to study under Pharisees there. We know that he studied under Gamaliel, who is one of the most famous Pharisees at the time. In fact, it's very possible there's a story in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is 12 years old, because remember, Paul and Jesus are about the same age. It's very likely there's a story in Luke chapter 2. You remember that story where Jesus is in the temple at age 12? It's the one where his parents leave and they do a head count halfway back home and they realize that Jesus isn't with them. It's like home alone. And they go back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus in the temple and he's sitting down and everyone is amazed at how he's answering questions and the questions that he's asking. It's a very possible that at that time, because it was the Passover, that Paul was actually watching Jesus as one of his peers and perhaps even jealousy and covetousness was starting to build in him right then. Because Paul grew up and hated Jesus. So at some point, he left Jerusalem, went back to Tarsus. But now, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he returns to Jerusalem, and he's there as a Pharisee, and he's there to exterminate Christianity. That is, his, that is the role that he has taken on. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Let's just read it for ourselves. Now, when they heard these things, this was Stephen, it was a a deacon in the church who was preaching. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and the 
They, they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It was Paul's name, for it was Paul. It was Saul. So here he is overseeing the murder of a leader in the Christian church. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means that he died. So here is Paul overseeing the, the death, the murder of one of the leaders in the early Christian church. And then Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 16, we read Paul's own testimony about how he changed. And he went from hating to Jesus to loving Jesus when he met Jesus. And that is all of your testimony. That is your testimony. You may have thought that you were indifferent to God at one point, but the truth is there is no middle ground. You hated God. And you hated his ways. And you loved his ways once you met him. But this is Paul's testimony. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. I mean, he was zealous, zealous for persecuting Christians. As I was on my way, here's how it happened, and drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Imagine what's going on in Saul's mind. I'm persecuting this evil sect of people. Now, why is a voice coming from heaven and saying that I'm persecuting him? So here's this voice. And I said, and he said to me, no, I'm sorry. And I answered verse eight, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So imagine Paul. He hears God saying, why are you persecuting me? And he thinks he's been doing God a favor. And then he asks that fearful question. Who are you, Lord? And then God answers saying, I am Jesus. The Pharisees rejected that Yeshua, Jesus, was the promised rescuer of the Old Testament. And Paul just learned that he was wrong. And Jesus was the promised rescuer. 
Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? So he's, he's done. He's undone. And he's in submission. Whatever God you want me to do. I'm changing everything. What shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, he was, he was blinded. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me. And I came into Damascus. So he was led into Damascus. And he had like scales over his eyes that God put there. He was blind. We don't know why, but he was led into Damascus blind. And you remember this interaction. We, we learn about this in Acts chapter 9, where God comes to a man named Ananias and prepares him for Paul to come to town. You remember God goes to Ananias, speaks to Ananias and says, Hey, wake up. Uh, there's a man coming. And when he comes, I want you to pray over him. And I want you to bless him because this guy is going to be my, my spreader of the good news to the Gentiles. And Ananias says, okay, you know, who is he? What should I look for? And God says, okay, he's kind of short. He's stout, bow-legged, got a uni. Just be watching for him. And he's thinking, that sounds a lot like, what's his name? And God says his name is Saul. Remember Ananias' response. He does what people often do, and he informs God. And he kind of has this, are you sure, interaction. Like God said, you know, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. He, that's right. He has been killing you guys. And so he informs us, are you sure Saul is the one who's been, you know, going around and killing Christians? And God says, yeah, I'm sure. So in one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Paul is never the same. Here is the glaring point. I know you've heard it a hundred times times if you've been in church, but it is this. Anyone can be saved by God. You just can't talk about Paul without saying that. It is the glaring truth of Paul's testimony that, hello, anyone can be saved. No one is outside the reach of God. When God flips the switch, He flips the switch. When God does a work in the heart, the work in the heart is done. When God calls, people respond. When God moves, other things move. God is king. And anyone, anyone can be saved. Paul was killing Christians. I mean, think of, you have people and friends and family like this person. I don't think they will ever be saved. They're probably not Killing Christians. There are people in the world today, right? Who are killing Christians. Anyone. Anyone can be saved. Anyone. You think Timothy was unlikely. How about Paul? As a missionary for God. I mean, he had some defects on his resume. You know, everything looks good. But we see here he used to kill us. 
Here he is, from persecutor to pastor, from murderer to missionary. Lived to be about 60 years old. First 30 years of his life hated Jesus. Last 30 years of his life served Jesus till he lost his head for loving Jesus under the great persecutor and Roman emperor Nero. Paul was no joke. Why? Why? Because God changed him. God gets the glory. Hey, one application. Don't stop praying for your friends who do not love Jesus. Read about Paul's life and be motivated. Let me close just reading three texts that are life summaries that Paul gives of himself. The first is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Listen to this man, Paul. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He is a man obsessed with God's glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. These are the lengths to which Paul went. This is Paul's account of how he suffered as a follower of Christ. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And people die from all of those. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger is his middle name, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is Paul's, what do you have to complain about speech. But he would look at you and me when we're complaining and say, are you serious? Shut it. Like when was the last time you were shipwrecked? When was the last time you got whipped with a cat of nine tails and flesh was torn off your back? Right? Beaten with rods. Not sleeping. People trying to kill me. This is my life. But here's the thing. When he's saying that, the end of this is not worship me. The end of this is, here's my point, Paul is making. Here's my point. This is how good God is. This is how good God is. This is how good His promises. This is how good what's coming next is. That I don't care about this life like some do. 
If God gives me blessing, great. If he gives me things to enjoy, I'm going to enjoy them. If he sends me hardship, I welcome the hardship because he wants to know, he says. I want to know and understand how much Jesus suffered for me. So I know when I suffer, I taste it just a little bit, but I know that it makes me love him more because I know what he went through. So he's just like, bring it, bring it, bring it. Bring the suffering. It just makes me love Jesus more. He would have just drove people crazy who were his enemies. I mean, imagine they're just killing him and beating him. And he's practically just got to smile. Like, we are going to end this. We are going to stop this. And they throw him in jail and he starts singing. And they beat him. And he looks at me and says, thank you. Thank you for enabling me to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. You just thanked us for beating you? I mean, you could not destroy this man. Why? Because Paul was amazing. No. Because God loved Paul. And because God changed Paul. And because God was with Paul. And then finally in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18b through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Did you hear what he said? He says, I know God's going to deliver me. And we may think that means you're not going to get killed. says, no, I know God's going to deliver me. says, my prayer is that God will be glorified whether I live or whether I die. So when he delivers me, whether that's to keep me alive or kill me, both will be deliverance, that he will be glorified. You think, Paul, well, how, how will God be glorified in your death? I mean, your life, we get that. They stone you and you praise God and they see how great God is. But if you die... Right? No more testimony. So listen to what he says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So here's how, Paul, here's how God is glorified even if they kill Paul. So even when they chop Paul's head off in 65, even when they do that, God is glorified because Paul says that when I die to depart from all of you, it is far better. 
So the lingering testimony of his death is here's a man who faces death, that moment when he loses absolutely everything in this life, and all he gets is Jesus, and he says that is the best and sweetest deal. And I'm looking forward to it. And he's actually wrestling with the decision. Who wrestles with that decision? Well, I'm really hard-pressed here. I don't know whether to want to live or to want to die. I mean, who thinks like that? He says, to die would be much better. I mean, I love all of you, but it would be much better to leave all of you and go to be with Jesus. And his, his case for staying isn't like, oh, I just want to enjoy this life and what this world has to offer. His case for staying is how good it is for those that he loves. But he says, for, for me, so to live is Christ, is all just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But to die, to die is even better. It's gain. And this is how Paul lived his life. That should prime us to hear God's words through Paul. What does he say to his friend? What does he say to the church? What does he say to our church? What is God saying to us? Listen, there are a lot of voices in the world today. Some good, some bad. And most of us Christians are on information overload. Reading this blog this podcast, this book, this article, this preacher, this pastor, this website. We're going to talk about that a lot because Paul's going to address it. But we must be a people like Paul. And Paul encourages Timothy to be a man who is able to be in a stadium, right? You know, like the Super Bowl, 60, 70,000 people. Everybody loud cheering, can't even hear yourself, right? We need to be a people who are able to distinguish that one voice on the other side of the stadium. That is the voice and the word of Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'll pray, and then we'll take communion together. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, you love Jesus and He is your Lord and your Savior and your treasure, you are committed to Him and to His people, whether Veritas you would call your church home or another church you would call your church home, you're welcome to share this meal with us today. We have people who will serve you up front. Take it when you're ready and we'll take it together as a, as a family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. And you are gracious. And you are great. Thank you for your word. And I know for many of us, when we, when we hear about your work in Paul and your work in Timothy, it seems beyond reach for us. And God, help all of us to see that it is beyond reach for all of us. 
And we need you. And through you, all things are possible. All things, meaning bringing glory to you in any and every circumstance. All those things are possible. Because you are a good God. You are a gracious God. You are a great God. Father, if I could pray for our series that we're going to do for First and Second Timothy, we pray not only for what you would do in the hearts of people now, but in the weeks and months to come, that you would use your holy word to make us holy people. God, that we would, we would not be as we have been. And we would not be a typical, notional, nominal Christian who hears word over and over and over again and is not affected. But that we would be atypical. That we would be your people hearing your word and being changed by your word. Becoming a people who are more pleasing to you. Who are less and less and less concerned with the treasures of this world. And more and more concerned with storing up for ourselves eternal treasure. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.